never, ever give up. Don't give up. Don't allow it to happen. If there's a concrete wall in front of you, go through it, go over it, go around it, but get to the other side of that wall. How about that? How about that? Some sound advice from the one and only DJT, Donald J. And what's a J stand for? Joey? Joseph? Uh, John? Jim? I don't know. All of those could be the same name, actually. I think. Because I know a couple Johns and Jims, and they go by all sorts of things. Welcome to the show. My name's Brendan. This is the State of the Universe. I appreciate you being here. This episode, if I'm going to play the wall speech, the one and only wall speech by DJT, you better think that I'm going to have someone on to talk about immigration. That's exactly what I have. Dr. Julia Young. She's a historian at the Institute for Policy Research at Catholic University, where she is also a professor. She is a fellow at the Kluge Center at the Library of Congress. She is an expert when it comes to the history of migration, the history of Mexico and Latin America, and Catholicism in the Americas. She wrote a prize-winning book on these very topics. It's called Mexican Exodus, Immigrants, Exiles, and Refugees of the Cristero War. And she is actively doing research for a second book spanning some very similar topics. The most provocative, talked about, hot issue, if you will, in this country right now is immigration reform. And from what I gather, this is a problem not just now. It's not a current thing. It's not a Donald Trump thing, although he gives us wonderful sound bites that we can use on the podcast. This is an issue that has been very prevalent throughout the history of this great country as well as almost every other country to ever exist. And Dr. Julia Young is here today to talk to me, to talk to us, to talk to you, to spread her wisdom, and for me to ramble about things as it pertains to immigration reform, as it pertains to historical immigration patterns, and what we can study from those immigration patterns, both Mexico to American immigration, both Chinese to America immigration, you know, and, and, and many other forms of immigration. We talk about Syrian immigration. We talk about refugees. We, we talk about a bunch of historical perspectives that you can use to strengthen your argument about how you feel about immigration today. And more importantly, is there a way that we can utilize historical perspectives like those possessed by Dr. Julia Young to learn about how we can solve the immigration problem that we see today. What can we learn about the push and pull factors that make people want to immigrate to a new area? What can we do to fix those problems? How can we make life better for people who live in in terrible environments, you know? And how can we avoid vilifying them when they want to move to a new environment if only temporarily to avoid the struggles that they're going through. These are all important questions, and we talk about them all. And so with that being said, people, check out my Patreon account, patreon.com slash thestateoftheuniverse, all one word. Go on thestateoftheuniverse.com, like, rate, review, subscribe, watch, listen to the podcast wherever you do, 
and that really helps the show out for you to click the five star button for you to click the thumbs up button whatever it is wherever you watch just do it it really does help in terms of analytics in terms of placement in search engines and all that sort of thing it helps it takes you two seconds so just do it you know and don't complain don't say brendan i don't want to click my f finger on the screen shut your mouth and do it shut your mouth and do it that's it simple you know just shut your mouth and do it so thanks for being here i appreciate you i hope that you enjoy the episode Dr. Julia Young. I always forget to say the doctor because I feel like we're on even playing fields because I will be a doctor soon enough. But I feel, I feel like some people might want to sit, want the doctor included. So Dr. Julia Young, how are you? Thanks. I'm fine. Thank you. It's yeah. really nice to talk to you. We are in an interesting time. Um, throughout my life, I have I was just thinking about this today. I have only been an adult for two presidents. Barack Obama oh. and wow. and Donald Trump. I'm only 23. <laughs> and so when I think about like my own political history that I store in my head, I don't have much. And so Donald Trump's campaign, which was at least as I perceived it, almost completely run on the basis of anti-immigration. That was one of his big selling points. He yeah. he painted America first. Yes, he he painted immigrants in a light such that he could build a following that was very anti-immigrant. It was a it was a a decision he made uh, in order to to gain a large sort of passionate followers. Um, but that's the first time I've seen it in my life where I really saw like anti-immigration take hold. And as someone who wasn't in you know sort of the political system for more than eight years, mm -hmm. uh, that was new to me. But as I was reading. All of the stuff that you've written, the Washington Post articles, the some of the papers that you've written and published, mm -hmm. um, I noticed that this this isn't a new thing. It's a very common thing, and it seems to occur in a cyclical pattern throughout the history of the Americas. Can you sort of give us, you don't have to tell us everything, but sort of an introduction to how this anti-immigration stuff pops up and, and what sort of is the catalyst for it? That's a great question, and um, it's it's kind it's really interesting. It's kind of like how how far do we actually want to go back? Because at some level, um, like nativism and a concern over immigrants actually is kind of a constant in human history, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we could even go back to like nomadic or semi-nomadic people fighting with other semi-nomadic people over claims to over territory right? right and like over dominance of territory and i'm actually this semester teaching a class called um migrations in the americas and i and i purposely started the class with people walking over um beringia the bering mm -hmm. straits um and down into the americas yeah 15,000 years ago and and on i mean the number we, we keep finding out People were coming down earlier than we thought. Yeah, um, I, I was going to say, I, th I think there's some like really ancient, ancient uh, civilizations that they have since found in, in South America, but maybe that's wrong. I think that was that there was one in um, in Chile. Uh, 
Monteverde, I think it's called, and I think that was fifteen thousand or fourteen thousand five hundred years ago. Right. But there, but there, I have also seen. I mean, there are also theor- there's like new knowledge being generated about mm-hmm. this all the time. New theories being generated about this all the time about when people came over, and that's really interesting. And that, you know, it it actually was really interesting to talk about this with students and to say, you know, well, who were the first immigrants to the Americas, and where did they come from? And if you put it that way they were Asian right. <laughs> and they came from the North. And then we, it was so interesting because we read these, um, we read these, um, a, a bunch of native American origin stories. And a lot of them will have this theme of like, we came from the North and we walked or like we came from the ice and we walked. It's really mm-hmm. interesting. So migration is uh, migration is a human constant. That's really a important thing to remember. Like who, what do we do as humans? We move. Um, and it's actually much more recent for us to be sedentary than for us to move in some ways. I mean, we move and we settle and then a new generation of us moves again, but, but we, we, we move around. And then when we settle, we want to protect the place where we've settled for ourselves and our net, our fa- immediate family, our kin network, our, our society, our ethnic group, whatever. And so, um, and so, actually it was really interesting to talk about intertribal warfare Mm -hmm. like a kind of defense of it and it's a complicated topic it's a really rich topic um but like a kind of defensive territory between indigenous people that happened before um the european arrival to the americas and of course european arrival and african arrival to the americas happens around the same time so um so there's a way in which like this is not only is this not just a Donald Trump story, mm-hmm. but it's actually a all the way back to human history story. But to then go back to your question about, you know, when does this what's the what are the precedents in the United States? I mean, they pretty much go back to um, like early British settlers in the United States, like basically the and, and others like, the, yeah, basically people get. Uh, here and then they are and they settle here and settling is a complicated word because mm-hmm. it often is pushing other people off their lands right so there's some conflict immediately often when they get here and then they get here and then they establish their own towns and settlements and cities and um and then there is an immediate concern about who the next people are going to be so like one of the kind of famous examples in immigration history is Benjamin Franklin worrying in writing about what the Germans are going to do. And this is in the 1700s, what the Germans are, what these German immigrants are going to do to the character of the Americas. You know, there, yeah. there's concern that they're going to come. And, the, and, and so that, so I, I don't know if you read this article, but I wrote an article called Making America 1920 Again. I um, may have, I may okay. have. So this is, this is an article about like tracing the history of nativism back, looking at that 1920 period, which which in which there's a lot of immigration restrictions and um and i argue that nativism is a couple like nativism is sort of two it's a it's the sense that you know the the native land has to be protected from Mm -hmm. outsiders and that outsiders you know and that therefore outsiders are dangerous to the native land and the native people in that land right and who is native Obviously, it depends on who's talking. Uh huh. Right. Yeah, so- I think that nativism. I was thinking about this. First off, I had never heard this word before before I started reading your stuff. Um, but it's very prevalent. 
in cultures that you see back, like you're talking about, back to essentially the beginning of civilization. Because I was thinking about North Sentinel Island. Are you familiar with North Sentinel Island? Remind me. It's this uh, tribe near India that lives on an island. And oh, it is uncontacted. Just recently, yes. And with then, the missionary. Correct. And the Christian yes. missionary went there to try to explore, convert these people or whatever. Yeah. And uh, he got killed. Yeah. And I think that those native people were doing exactly the two things you just mentioned. They are right. trying to protect their land. And also they associate anyone coming onto their land with, with dangers. I right. think it, it fundamentally is built into us. Uh, the question is sort of, how can we analyze that within ourselves? And also, when should we suppress it? And I think we're really right. bad at those things. Well, it's, we're also, it's really complicated because we're, we have these two impulses. This is what historians always say. It's complicated. It's more mm -hmm. complicated than that. That's what we do. That's, That's what industry. physicists do, too. And then oh, we good. wave our hands and, and yeah. hope people all... give us money. <laughs> well, we don't have a lot of money, but I think it's um, probably what all academics do, right? Is like, it was more complicated than that. Please listen to us. Yeah. Um, but uh, um, so well, where was I going with that? The defense of territory. Um, I, re I really wanted to make this one point. I do this way too often. <laughs> I do this way too often. That's one time. you just asked me. Uh, the what the question? I was making the point that uh, we we aren't good sometimes at oh, deciding okay. when to suppress our nativism. Okay, uh, so so what I was gonna say before I got distracted by the identity of historians is that we have these like really dueling impulses in the United States. Like we put the Statue of Liberty up, mm -hmm. and then later we put the po we didn't put the poem on right away, but later we put on the Emma Lazarus poem. You know, give yeah. me your huddled masses yearning to be free. Um, like people like washed up from Europe's shores. I mean, I can't recite it by heart, but this, this, we, we, on the one hand, we want to think of ourselves as a nation of immigrants, as a refuge, as, you know, we're the land of freedom and we're the home of democracy. And so as such, we are a paragon of, you know, of openness and of, virtue. And so we were, a, so we are a nation of immigrants. And so you hear people say that and people believe that. And it's true because we are a nation of immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, although uh, th th saying that kind of also elides a lot of history, like we're a nation of immigrants, but we're also a nation of people who have taken over lands that other people were living on. Right. So, right. so that's that. So we want to think of ourselves as a nation of immigrants and then we also have continuously thought of ourselves as a nation that needs to be protected from whoever the newest generation of immigrants is. So, you know, if it's if it's the early sort of like Anglophone settlers in the 13 colonies worrying about these new like these German riffraff who are coming and yeah. they're speaking German and they're got their German newspapers and you know and this is all way before I mean then, then there's a lot of anti-German phobia again peaking at, at World War One right but so like so you know and then and then and then that wave of Germans integrates into society we mm -hmm. also use the word assimilate assimilates can be a kind of a problematic word but still a useful concept. Um, and then that wave kind of like integrates and then we sort of forget that we ever worried about those people. Right. Right. On some level. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so, uh, and then those people become the people that worry about the next people. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and on and on and on. I, um, go ahead. I, th- I think there's something interesting here that, that sort of um, just popped into my head. And I was going to bring up that sometimes Americans don't understand, or at least some Americans who really try to solve the problem of immigration in what I would consider the wrong way, they oftentimes don't consider the factors, and you talk about this a lot, that sort of push and pull immigration to different areas. But I actually think, I just realized, that I think Americans actually do have a fundamental understanding of the push and pull, and that's why, not just Americans, are humans, and that's why we tend to be wary of immigrants, because we know that there has to be something that is pushing them here, and we oftentimes associate not the individual that's coming, but the culture itself with the pushing factor. And it, it creates like a, a, a sort of a, a fear within the, the welcoming country. You si- I think you saw this in the Syrian refugees. Yeah. You, you had a lot of fear that these people were coming here and they were bringing their problem with them. And I certainly saw that. I lived in Pennsylvania at the time mm. and I saw tons and tons because... I think certain areas in Pennsylvania were you very saw tons welcoming. Tons of fear or tons of refugees? tons of fear. Okay. Tons of yeah. sort of like no, don't bring the refugees here. They're going to bring right. terrorists. Right, right, right. That was that was so interesting. And isn't it also interesting how we don't hear about that anymore? I mean, we've cut mm-hmm. way down on the number of people that we grant asylum, and you know, we have an an administration currently that would like to grant no one asylum. Um, I think Stephen Miller was just in that in that new tell-all from the Trump about the Trump administration. Stephen Miller was just quoted as saying, "Like if I had my way, we wouldn't grant asylum to anybody, right?" Mm-hmm. So we and and that's been pretty overt throughout this administration. But even under Obama, we really didn't admit that many refugees, especially compared to European countries, right? right. But but there was all this fear. I remember um, I remember someone I know uh, talking about how worried. Uh, they were about um, the, this possibility, like this this fresh fear of terrorism on mm-hmm. our shores, right? That they're going to bring um, violence, and that's a, so. There are certain like themes um, that are part of that nativist fear and conviction that immigrants are dangerous, and they include, you know, the idea that these that this out, this group of outsiders, this group of people that are coming, are inherently more violent than we are, right? And so mm-hmm. that they have potential to bring um, violence. And so now you see that applied a lot to um, Muslim immigrants, right? And then yeah. also to um, Latinos in the way that they are connected to to the idea of gangs and gang violence. So if you see you know, people tweeting pictures of like MS-13 gang members with tattoos on their faces, that mm-hmm. that's really old. And if you, I mean, that's, a, that's an idea, that's a concept that's just being basically recycled um you can look at i I mean i really recommend you look at these actually the if you haven't seen them political cartoons from the late 19th and early 20th century where people will do it's essentially the same as these like twitter memes that go Uh around where you know newspapers read by many many people will run these cartoons that that do these caricatures of people based on their national uh, or their national origin and ascribe qualities to them. So like the, uh, the Italians were supposed to be, you know, cause of the, of the connection to the, yeah. the black hand and the mafia, the, the Italians were supposed to be, you know, they're all criminals. They're mm-hmm. all, 
um, particularly uh, um, inclined towards criminality. Yeah. But it got really specific, you know, like the Poles will drink too much and then they'll, then they'll punch you in the head and the Greeks will steal your stuff. And then like, it, it was very, um, like the, there were even like sort of specific types of violence that went along with specific people. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's a really important part of nativism. And I think probably also it, it also goes back to human history. It's really about defining the other or mm-hmm. defining yourself in relation to the other and the fear of the other and the fear of the unknown. Yeah. Okay. We have, we have sort of digressed from, from something you're actually a, a real expert on. And that was the, the war that happened. Can you pronounce the name of the war that you wrote a book about? Oh yeah. Can you can, just pronounce I, the name and then I'll ask my question. Yeah. Yes. Cristero. Cristero. So, okay. Yeah. See, I didn't know if there was Spanish. like some some Spanish uh, flow to the word that I should have. I mean, it would been be employing. Cristero in Spanish. You would like sort of roll or articulate the R's a little more than we I do, see. but it's totally. I mean, in Spanish, the word is actually la. Well, like in Mexico, it's often referred to as la cristiada, which which kind of is more like um, it sounds like a crusade. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but they'll also say la guerra cristera. So like the Cristero War. Yeah. But in English we say Yep, definitely definitely not saying that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, the Cristero War is an example of one of these things we're talking about, these these push factors. Oh right? yeah. You that is a, where your question started. Sorry. No, it's no no issue. Listen, I am so bad at this sometimes. It, <laughs> but it's not even a bad thing. That's what we're here for. Right? Yeah, is yeah. to talk. So yeah. people are listening and, and if you were to if you were to structure this such that I asked a question, you gave an answer. I asked a question, you gave an answer. What's the point? Why not just read it? It's going to be well, quicker. You're we can be do able it to all like, by email. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's much, so this is important. This human yeah. contact is, is incredibly important. And I think it's the exact reason that you see podcasts becoming as big as they are. is because right. you get to see unfiltered uh, connection between two people talking about a topic. And you get to see the digressions. And you get to see the thoughts sort of flowing out of you. Because... Sometimes you, you have a really good tangent that, that would really illuminate a point. But if you're right. just emailing me, then I, you, can't, you can't expand upon that. So, right. yeah, it's perfectly fine okay. for you to sort of say whatever it is that you want to say for however long you want to say it. No okay, issue. Great. When, I, great. When, when I was uh, starting this out six months ago, I was, uh, I was always thinking in the sense that I should stay on topic all the time. I should only talk about the thing at hand. And I think it actually hurts because mm. then I would just sort of like kill like, oh, there was a really good point there, but I didn't make right. it because I was moving on right. to the next question. Yeah. You know, I worked as a journalist and I would do the same thing. I would ask someone a question and then they'd start to talk about something and it would actually be much more interesting than whatever answer they were giving to my question. Uh-huh. And I would cut them off because I would think I needed to move on to the next question. So yeah. yeah been there, I think the that. reason is, is because when you hear the question, your brain You've probably already heard the question or thought about it before. So you already have like a paragraph written right. in your mental in your mental storage and you just spew it out. But right. the stuff that comes after is the stuff that your brain is writing a, as yeah, as totally. you go. And that right. stuff is always much more interesting. So yeah, no issue w- with that. But the Cristero War is an example of one of these these push factors in American or the Americans history. Mm-hmm. That really, I think, resulted in in a lot of immigration flowing into the United States because of of some 
things that were occurring in Mexico and, and the Mexican people that were not or that were directly affected by this, they probably didn't want to stay in those conditions. So that they, they came somewhere where maybe they could live a more prosperous life. And I'm curious, is there a connection between that event, which was a physical event, right? Mm-hmm. It was something that was happening that was directly impacting the Mexican people, potentially in a violent way. And I think you see that now in countries like Honduras, yeah, countries that absolutely. are sending people, not sending people, but people are fleeing. They're saying, yeah. and you know, I didn't even notice this or I didn't think about this, but I think that the the Mexican border, the Mexican politicians are even being like, man, we got to do something about our border. Oh, absolutely. The southern border because we have Yeah, all and they these... have been for years. Yeah. They've been saying that for years. Yeah. Yeah. So well, is there parallels that you can draw between these historical perspectives that you get from studying something like the Cristero War and what's going on now where we have – actually, we, we have low immigration rates right now if you compare it yeah. to like the 80s through the 2000s. Um, where right. We could have like 1.5 million apprehensions at the border a year, which is right. insane. It's like a factor We have of- a lower number of apprehensions at the border. We still have a – yeah, we have a high number of immigrants – as a proportion of the population mm-hmm. compared to say the 1960s. But we, but the number of apprehensions at the border is, has, has dropped a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I would almost feel like the app, the number of apprehensions at the border now are, would be inflated by the fact that our technology is so much better. And so the, the, Maybe, the, yeah. the, the, the decrease is probably even more pronounced if you want to actually analyze sort of illegal immigration. Yeah. You mean because it would have been maybe larger before? Yes. Like the number, yeah, yeah. I mean, there will, and that's always an issue, right? And at, at some point, we'll talk about that. Like, how do you count people who are not here, um, who have not come through official means? Mm-hmm. But, um, but no. But to talk about that, I mean, I think it's really interesting to think about push factors and pull factors, and that's something like we talk about those in immigration studies, and those. It's also complicated because. You know, like you can't, it's not like a, it's not like a math problem. Like there is a push factor and a pull mm-hmm. factor. And so everybody in this place is pushed out by the push factor. Like the Cristero War is happening in Mexico in the late 1920s and there's violence into the 1930s. And some people leave as a result, but other people don't leave. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not as simple as like there's this one push factor and it causes everybody to leave. It's, 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 um, you have to look at this combination of like push pa- factors, pull factors, um, family networks. Like when there's a one family member that's gone and then he or she brings multiple other family members back, like up to the United States, you mm-hmm. know, employment networks, employers that go and recruit in Mexico, which is something that still happens and has been happening for um, all of the 20th century for sure. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's really important to understand those push factors, like just as urgently important today as it is now. I actually think that um, at least the media that I read there's been a pretty good sort of like a lot of visibility has been given to the crisis in Central America, the crises in Central America, political violence, repression in Honduras, problems in Nicaragua, like resurging problems in Nicaragua, Mm -hmm. climate issues, like big drought in Guatemala, um, and then, and then gang violence all throughout, right? So like there, and, and there are these sort of categories of push factors, right? Like you can have, you can have war, you can have war and war or various other forms of violence um you could have political repression where like a group of people or class of people a political party people who belong to a political party feel like there's no option but but to go Mm -hmm. um and then you can have you can have economic reasons 
And sometimes these reasons are interconnected. We also have this, we have this desire to really kind of categorize immigrants. Like, are you a war refugee or are you a labor immigrant or are you a political, are you seeking political asylum? And then you can put them in this neat box that says economic, political, um, climate, whatever. Mm -hmm. But these things are totally interconnected, you know? So if, if there's a war near you and you aren't, let's say you're a farmer and you're, I don't know, like your land isn't burned, but the town where you sell your goods is burned or destroyed. And now you have no market for your goods. And so you can't make a living. And so then you're an economic migrant, but you're also coming as a result of a war. So these things are really, these categories are like, they're not as neat as we want them to be. Um, And you're seeing that a lot with the Central American crisis. You're seeing people who are coming up and claiming asylum um, and there was a really interesting article from a while ago in the Post about the Washington Post about how, um, you know, like people are, they understand that asylum is a kind of an option for them. Uh, they they need to leave for a lot of reasons, right? Mm-hmm. And they, there is a, incredible violence, but also they can't support themselves. And so in a way, like there's, there are some people that argue that, uh, that asylum policies, I'm sure that a lot more people that would argue this on the right, like I believe there needs to be uh, asylum. Like we, we should be granting people political asylum. But um, there's a way in which some people argue that asylum incentivizes migration because it incentivizes people who might not necessarily leave or people who are leaving for economic reasons. And if you're leaving for economic reasons, you're not supposed to be eligible for asylum. Mm-hmm. Asylum is re- strictly for people who are who have a fear of their life if they return to their home country. So yeah. people who are being persecuted for something that they you know, that they can't help like their political allegiance or their, or there's it's in under Obama, it was sexual identity, you know, like mm-hmm. we'll see what happens with that domestic violence. We'll see what happens with that. There are efforts in the Trump administration to stop, you know, I, again, there, it's a very anti asylum administration, but, um, but asylum is also, one, it's just, just, it, yeah, it's, it's a, we try asylum puts immigrants into a particular category when immigration isn't something that's very easy, easy to categorize. So those are the that's that's push factors and then pull factors, you know, like what what in the United States is pulling people here. We've always got the labor. I mean, we've we have had periods of economic downturn, mm-hmm. but outside of those periods of economic downturn, we've got the labor market and we've got, as I wrote in the piece that I think you you first found um or that was the first piece you read of mine we've got um we've always got a demand for cheap labor and that demand has only grown you know especially kind of after the 60s and 70s although like i had several comments i didn't read all the comments on that article but there were several comments that made a point that i had kind of thought about making but then i thought it was a little too bombastic but was like well how far back does our demand for cheap labor go right you know I mean, we had free labor um, in this country. And then when that was when when slavery was abolished, we had um, very cheap immigrant, a huge wave of cheap immigrant labor from Asia and southern and eastern Europe. And then that was restricted. You just just made me think about something because I wasn't considering I was, you know, I'm I was reading the sort of timeline that, that you can get you can put together by reading all of your work. And I wasn't considering the fact that this this cheap labor market you mentioned, starting with with people from Asia, really mm-hmm. did start when the free labor market got abolished. 
That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and by the free labor market, people, if, if you can't take the hint, we mean the abolishment of slavery. Yeah, yeah. And and it's depressing mm-hmm. to think about. It's depressing to think about. The, I mean, it's it's really a, really a, a great and amazing and wonderful thing that slavery was abolished. And yet there is also this demand for for really cheap labor that doesn't go away Mm -hmm. and so that was I mean I think that was one of my like that's a thought that I've had for a long time in arguing with people about I mean this that article actually dates to a couple of specific arguments I had with some friends who are like more like more kind of anti-immigration and specifically very, very concerned about undocumented immigration, which I am too, but for really different reasons. Like mm-hmm. their concern is, you know, well, this country, they're costing us money in this country and they're taking our jobs. And my like continuous retort to people was, do you like cheap strawberries? And so this was my way of building an article around uh-huh. that. Do you, that question about cheap strawberries, like how do we, how are we all as consumers implicated in this. And I think there's a tendency to say, oh, well, you know, it's only wealthy people who have undocumented nannies and maids that they're the ones that are, you know, or greedy companies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, and, th- and that's, there are those people, but also we, like, we all participate in this economy, which depends on cheap labor. Yes. So. Yeah, the, it's always a slippery slope when people say that, that, immigrants are taking their jobs i i always sort of and i should say that i am i agree with you and i think most people when i say that undocumented immigrants are probably not a good thing to have you know millions and millions and millions of them Uh, right right it's it's fundamentally not a good idea i also don't believe it's a good idea to have completely open borders to just let people flow in and out as they please and so I should, you know, tell the listener then preface it with that, especially in an age where um, there's a lot of identity politics, and I fear that if someone gets this idea in their head that that we're speaking for one side, then then they'll stop listening. Right. Well, and that's the problem too, is that it's the whole um, like na- our national conversation about immigrants and immigration has become so uh, binary, mm-hmm. right? You're either uh, you're either opposed to undocumented immigration because they're taking our jobs and you want to build a wall and you, you know, and you think they're dangerous to society or you're for completely open borders and, you know, you, you, and you don't care and you are happy to use undocumented immigrant labor and you have like, <laughs> and you have maids and what, you know, I mean, it's just yeah. this sort of, and it's sort of ridiculous. And I, I think that was also where, I I was actually really glad to see when I wrote that article about our collective involvement in this economy and therefore this pattern of undocumented immigration. I was really glad to see that there were, there did actually, I mean, I, again, I didn't read all the comments on the Washington Post website, but there were comments from people on both who were very obviously on mm-hmm. Okay, I just said it shouldn't be binary, and I'm about to say they were on one side or another. But yeah. we do tend to identify on these two sides, even though I think both sides mischaracterize each other. Right. But so there were people on either side who kind of, I, I think there were people who said, oh, well, we can all agree on this. We can all agree on uh, 
the fact that this is a part of our economy and that we all participate in this in some way. Mm -hmm. And and obviously there were plenty of people who also didn't agree, but I did, I did think if we can reframe the debate some so that, I mean, first of all, I think people who are in favor of (sighs) fixing our immigration system in a way that isn't just like build a wall, Mm -hmm. get rid of all the undocumented immigrants, you know, which like that, that's me. <laughs> like yeah. I want our immigration system to be fixed. Um, we need to also do a better job pushing back on that idea that we want, that we don't, that we just, we're fine with open borders. Right. You know? I mean, some people are, mm-hmm. there are people, there are definitely plenty of people. Um, I think like, you know, there, there's sort of overlaps or people kind of on the far left, so people, um, people who are libertarian, yeah. who are kind of, and I had a debate with a libertarian friend of mine, actually, and he was like, why do, because I had said in the article, well, we all agree, even if left or right, we agree that undocumented immigration is a problem. Mm-hmm. And he was like, why do we, no, we don't, because, you know, these people are taking jobs that are, they, they want to take these jobs for low pay. And if the jobs are there and there's someone who wants to take them, then, you know, why not let them take the jobs? And that's another argument, although I I disagree on sort of moral moral grounds because you know presumably there are people in the world that would take jobs for free if it meant getting them out of an awful situation in their home country but does right. that mean we should does that mean we should offer people like should we allow people to immigrate here and work for free you know yeah, I think yeah. most people would say yeah. no about that yeah I, I don't know of anyone that I don't have that would a say yes. here to argue that point with me so yeah uh, um, See, I am maybe a little pessimistic in this view, but I don't know if there's any going back. I think that now that Donald Trump has sort of um, created this professional wrestling way of going about political office, I don't know if you can go back. I think the way that people in the future are going to build their base is by being controversial and by appealing very strongly to one side of the two-party system. Mm-hmm. And to do that, I, I think you do fundamentally have to occupy a far end. I don't like it. I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it will. I don't think it will lead to good policy. I right. think it will continually lead to contention, like we're seeing right now, where the government's going to be shut down for a month, and then right. maybe maybe longer. Right. Right. But, oh, hopefully not. but yeah, it's 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 a really tough decision. What I'd like to see is is that we analyze this in a way that we sort of look at why are people being pushed here and is there anything that we can do i know there's a a large amount of people out there who say we should stay inside our border we should take our military out of everywhere and we should mind our own business right but if you want to solve immigration if you are walking around and you're saying well immigration costs us 54 billion dollars a year Mm -hmm. then you should in your brain say how can we cut down on that number? And the the answer might be we do some investment in the push factor. That right. way, hopefully, the people stop coming. Maybe we only save ten billion. Maybe we send forty billion off to other countries to fix their problems. But in the end, maybe we save ten billion dollars, and we don't have to do silly things like like build a wall. Because I don't know. It, at this point, it's like it's five billion dollars. Um, which truly is a drop in the bucket of um, of five billion to build the wall. Yeah, well, it's, it's not, not actually really right. It's going to be like seven hundred billion by the time it's yeah, done. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, 
it's it's I mean, a depending good point. on how tall it is and what it's made of and i mean the wall and is, if it's at a wall or is it a slats yeah. or a fence or you, you know there's that also changes did you see that yeah did you see the uh the 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 i think it was nbc got these these photos from border patrol agents and there was the latter things cut in the slats oh yeah they yeah, had yeah cut with saws like with you know, yeah, but I don't, I don't actually think that was, um, I think that was U.S. officials like testing yeah, out. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Right? It wasn't actual immigrants. I mean, the other picture I saw was ladders being used. Um, and I think that was a kind of like a night vision photo that was taken over some actual fencing. Yeah, I saw that too. In the desert, right? Like, but that's the thing with walls is that, you know, you can climb over them. And I mean, the wall, the what, like, <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk about the wall and the problems that everyone should have with the wall because it's nonsensical. I mean, you can like the, you can only talk, I mean, nobody, there are people who want it. Those people are usually people who are pretty far from the border. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, we know that all the political representatives from the border region are opposed to the wall, Republic, including Republicans. Um, you, you know, you have environmental problems. You have, I, I have a card on my desk from, from a butterfly sanctuary where it's like, please don't build a wall through uh-huh. our butterfly sanctuary, you know? And okay, fine. That's a bleeding heart liberal thing to worry about butterflies. But I mean, there are really big environmental concerns. There's a river there. There are parts of that geography that, you know, that are occupied by indigenous people. And then there's, you know, there's also the, like, there's also this this staggeringly important issue of 50% of our of undocumented people in the US around 50% I think a little over um have arrived with visas mm-hmm. through airports and they don't or legally through land ports of entry and then they stay in stay here and their visas expire right right so like w- you can't build a wall in the sky right um so that so that would seem to indicate that we need a different solution. So I think like, I mean, it's really, you're right about the polarization and about the future of political discourse. And it's really hard to be a person right now who's, who's standing up and saying like, we need compromise solutions Mm -hmm. and it's really complicated. And we have to sit down and talk about it because everybody is boiling everything down to the simplest essence. And I mean, I guess like, you know, yeah. And, and, uh, and and then and then picking a side, um, and so uh, the, the you know the best the best kind of arguments I, the, the arguments I agree with on like how to quote unquote solve the problem of undocumented immigration are you know deal with the push factors deal mm-hmm. with the pull factors, yeah. and um, and then implement some systems that we already have in place like I wrote about E-Verify. I mean, this is, I guess this has to do with dealing with the pull factor. So like, it could be an issue of sending uh, targeted aid, like aid that, re- and, the, and aid that really works, because this is, this is another complicated thing. So sending aid that really works, or who knows what it is, like, maybe it's peacemakers, maybe it's cons- people who are really good at, you know, negotiating peace agreements and sending those people down to try and get a hold on some of the political unrest and violence um, in say Central America, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there's that, and 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 sending you know financial assistance if people need it. Um, okay, so that's dealing with the push factors. But then on the pull side, like even if there was no violence, I mean in Mexico, for 
a lot of the 20th century, for a lot more of the 20th century, there's been not so much violence, right? Mm -hmm. People didn't come from Mexico primarily because of war. People came because there were a lot of people in Mexico without good jobs in Mexico. uh, And the United States was right there Mm -hmm. with our comparatively much higher wages. And so they came you know, not the, like the, the, the pull factor was maybe even more important than the push factor there. So that's really complicated because then we have to ask ourselves these hard questions about, you know, well, do I want to pay? Like, it's hard to get the numbers on this. And I actually, you know, kind of tried to track a lot of them down. Like, do, do I want to pay double the amount for a gallon of milk? Do I want to pay $6 for a gallon of non-organic 2% milk? You know, yeah. or I think it was eight for organic so, you know, do I want to do that? Do we want to do that? Do we want to like, and, and then if so, so, or, you know, do, do employers want to take the trouble to really make sure that everybody they hire is documented, you know, because it's very convenient for employers to have, I, I don't want to malign all employers, but certainly some employers in some places, it's very convenient for them to have a pretty docile workforce that is afraid of what you might do to them if they ask for better working conditions and higher pay, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's really hard for undocumented people to make demands in the workplace because all anyone has to do is threaten to call right. Migra. Yeah. And then, you know, so, um, so, so we have, you know, we have this population that is like, I don't know if the, what the right word is, maybe like compromised in a sense, like they can't, they can't um, really make demands and they can't ask for, for, for very much. Um, and so that's something that we have to grapple with. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a full factor yeah. that we have to deal with. So, and then, I, I mean, I think there is also a place for border security. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I also think, I mean, I, 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 there's a wonderful book I really recommend to, to you or to your read, to your listeners. Um, it's called The Devil's Highway, and it's, um, and it's by Luis Alberto Urrea, um, and he writes about people who have died along the border, but also he writes very sympathetically about the border patrol. He was kind of like embedded with a border patrol office and about the, the difficulty of the job that they have to do, that they're being asked to do. They're mm-hmm. being asked troll this space um where you know people are crossing in the desert and people are dying in the desert and they're having to deal with that and now increasingly they're having to deal with drug trafficking and crime and you know violence along the border so there there is a need for security along the border and the security that we have along the border is also working like that i think that's also a reason that a lot of these um that a lot of um uh that the number is falling of people Mm -hmm. who are getting detained at the border yeah i i think sometimes about what it must be like to be a border patrol agent and mm-hmm. and a fam. you you run into a family you know like a yeah a woman and an older guy you know like three kids you got to carry them through the desert because they can't walk by themselves and and they're pleading with you to let them go because because if they go back they're probably not going to be in a very good situation First mm-hmm. off, if you're in the desert, if you you and your whole family are in the desert, it probably means that you have nothing where you're at because you're not just going to leave behind, you know, everything you own. Maybe maybe you have a house. Yeah. Maybe. I don't yeah. know, though. No, it's complicated. I mean, well, here is one interesting thing about, you know, immigrants, immigration. Like, so, so I think that that is true 
of the people who are coming here seeking asylum, a mm-hmm. lot of them, right? Like the, uh, the people who are leaving their homes because of violence in Central America, like those are people who are really, truly desperate. Um, and for whom, you know, the option, like if we think of this as choices that people make, like the option of walking through large parts of Mexico, crossing the southern border to Mexico, which is actually like equally, if not more dangerous for people mm-hmm. than the northern border, um, uh, in different ways. Like there's a more kind of because of threats of like gang and cartel violence. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mexican border patrol at the southern border is not known for being particularly, you know, humane or friendly to um, Central American migrants coming in. And there's mm-hmm. like a lot of antipathy between Salvadorans and Mexicans, for example, because because of that, because Salvadorans have had this long experience of well, for and other historical reasons. Um, so, uh, oh, you're gonna have to remind me where I was going with that again. <laughs> so, oh, oh, about poverty, like so, so. So those, there are definitely people that are your typical, you're sort of like your, your statue of Liberty immigrant, right? Like your mm-hmm. huddled masses, but actually typically, um, I know this is true for Mexican migration and I think even more so for some other places, like typically migrants aren't the very poorest folks in the sending society mm-hmm. because you have to have a little bit of money to make the journey. Yeah. Right. And if you're absolutely destitute, like you don't usually have the resources or the money to even to travel or make the trip. So obviously it depends a lot on where you are. So if you're in Mexico and you're the journey is relatively easy and relatively short, you're right next to the United States on a land border. And if you went, if you went, you know, or like in the, in the 1920s, there was almost nobody even patrolling that border. So it was really quite easy to get there. Um, but you had to buy a rail ticket, which not everybody could do. And then, you know, for immigrants who are coming, say, from Asia or from Africa, the cost is even higher because you've got to pay an airfare, you've got to pay airfare, you're coming much further. And so what you see, and, and, you know, there is a a pretty significant undocumented migrant flow from China and from the Philippines, um, but often they are actually paying, um, like, I know, I know Chinese immigrants, there's a, there isn't a system of like paying bribes or paying like the, their version of coyotes mm-hmm. to bring them into the United States. And it's really, uh, the cost is really high. There's a really great New Yorker article on the, um, network of undocumented immigrant, Chinese immigrants working in Chinese restaurants along the East coast and yeah. how, yeah, like how they pay, I forget what they're called, like snakeheads or something. I forget the name for the coyotes, mm-hmm. but they pay an, you know, a smuggler to arrange for them to come in and then they work in those restaurants to pay those people back. But they're not the very poorest members of society. And you can see that often in like their levels of education or their levels of, you know, well, mostly levels of education. And so, you know, immigrants from Central America and Mexico tend to have lower levels of education and less resources because it's cheaper for them to get here. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, with African immigrants, for example, in particular, they tend to have higher levels of education and literacy and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, a lot, and, and that's another thing to remember about immigration. And I think this is where also it's really helpful to study the push factors. I mean, this can kind of take it back to my, to my book a little bit, the, the way it's really helpful to study um, what was going on in the in the sending country before they left? Like immigrants are complex; they're humans. They're complex and you know complex people with political um, mm-hmm. formation, political identities, um, religious identities. Uh, they make 
decisions, just like we all do. They make decisions about their lives based on, you know, evaluating a number of factors, evaluating the options available to them. Um, and not everybody immigrates, you know, there are right. a lot of, there are plenty of people who don't, you know, there's nothing that could make them want to leave their home country and to leave their, um, families. And so, so when we actually, when we do more work to understand, you know, what are the factors that are causing people to immigrate and like, what, what can we understand about their country or the situation that they left in order to better understand the kind of people they are? I mean, that, I, I think that's a really good thing to do. <laughs> You know, yeah, I agree, and and I I don't see it being done enough, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, this like in the case of um, Mexican migrants, you know, what I saw in reading tons and tons of books on Mexican migrants, because that's what historian historian doctoral students have to do mm -hmm. is like read all the books, um, and I saw that over and over again like Mexicans in Mexico are seen as really complex subjects, right? They're yes. again, like political, they're got very, they argue with each other. They've got social class divisions. They've got, you know, hopes and dreams and whatever. Mexican immigrants are totally one dimensional, you know, mm -hmm. like the, a lot of the history about Mexican immigrants that I was reading, I mean, this was in the early two thousands and I actually think it's gotten a lot better since then. But a lot of the history that I was reading was about like these are laborers you mm -hmm. know and in some cases they're refugees of the revolution there wasn't very much about them coming as a result of the cristero war which is why i wrote that book um but you know in some cases mexican migrants were portrayed as political refugees but really only like a very small number of them and those were usually the more like elite folks who settled in um places like san antonio close to the border but for the most part they were these kind of like anonymous workers and the writing about them was about you know well did they unionize or not um there was a there were really good books about mexican migrants and the mexican revolution so like were they did they support the mexican revolution or did they not support the, the, the mexican revolution but i thought that there was really space for a study of mexicans as a diaspora mm -hmm. so like as a people with connections to their homeland yeah. and a people with a political agenda for their homeland. And I thought that that, that helped to complicate, there's that word again, like complicate our, um, the, maybe some of those preconceptions about Mexican migrants, like, Oh, Hey, look, they were, um, some of them are, you know, really religious or some of them really disagreed with each other about this religious conflict that was happening in their homeland. And some of them, they came to the, sure, they came to the U.S. to work, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they came to them and they worked in all kinds of places and they did all kinds of things. And as they were working, they were also organizing politically, you know, like, mm -hmm. so some of these people that are like working in the canning industry in Southern California or in Los, you know, like Los Angeles and California at on the like during the day they're canning but yeah. then they're coming home and they're participating in these political events like they're showing up to rallies they're showing up to marches mm -hmm. to because what's happening in their homeland is they're following along with it they still consider themselves part of that community yeah. and i i just i think it, that helps us understand immigrants like we again all it's all about sort of like not putting immigrants in these simplistic boxes right yeah, that it, it, it's a it's a very good observation, and I wonder if, in a circumstance like say what's going on in Honduras, 
if you and, and that whole region, what, what's that? It's called mm. the what's it called? The Triangle, the Southern Triangle, or something. I forget what it's called. Yeah, it's, there's some name for that region that I that I'm not remembering. But regardless, I I've just heard Central American Crisis, but yeah. So whatever problem is is happening in Central America, I wonder mm-hmm. if you can can alleviate that push that pushes immigrants out. Would you find that that people who had illegally immigrated and are now living in the United States illegally, undocumented, would mm-hmm. they return? I think that's something that, that oh. should be questioned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, okay, I'm not saying yes. I'm saying yes, good question. I don't, like, I would not be surprised if a lot of them in the first generations, in the immigrant generation, especially people who haven't been here for all that long, Mm -hmm. would return, like, the people that left because of intense political, economic, or other kinds of pressure, Mm-hmm. that they would feel that they wanted to return. I mean, this is a personal anecdote, but it's kind of, it was interesting to me as a historian of immigration. So my husband's parents come from Greece and they came in the fifties and sixties. And now it's the 20, whatever it is, 20 teens. Mm-hmm. And they've been here for decades and decades and decades. They've raised three kids here and they, all their kids went to college and they have grandkids here and they've lived their lives here. And it never occurred to me to ask them if they had thought about going back to Greece, right? Cause yeah. they've lived their whole lives here. And one day I was talking to them and I was like, so, so did you think you were going to go back to Greece? And my mother-in-law immediately said, Oh yeah, of course we did. Our families were there, you know, we, mm-hmm. of course we did. But once we had kids, it became, so they left Greece because of lingering, like push factors, because of devastation after World War II and the Greek Civil War that happened um, right after World War II. And they left as, like, again, overlapping political and economic factors, right? right? The war didn't cause, they weren't like war refugees, mm-hmm. But they were kids, teenagers who who were growing up in a country with a devastated economy and a long history of immigration to the U.S. And their families said, you know, you've got an uncle in Chicago, go over there. But absolutely, they thought they were going to come back and plan to come back and sent money back. I mean, that's another that's another indicator of, mm-hmm. you know, are immigrants investing in their homeland and how long do they do that? And in the first generation, they they send um, the remittances is what they're not. Like, so they send money back home and they fund um, you know, infrastructure, schools, family members. Um, and so like, and that's not always because they want to go back, but mm-hmm. there's a connection to the homeland that's very strong and very intense. And so, um, so, so then the question is like, does that last into the, the next generation? And I think the answer is for most people is no. And again, to go to the personal story, like, you know, my husband and his sister's grew up in the United States and they're not going to go back to Greece. I mean, they go back to visit and it's great, but they're not going to go back there to live permanently um, because they're now American. Right. Right. And this this is their identity. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I noticed this anecdotally too, that I, I think Americans almost don't value the, the homeland as much. And when I say that, I mean, the, the I guess in, in the case of most Americans, the hometown, or at least maybe I have that belief because I was raised in a single parent household. And I think it mm. built into my brain that like, uh, I'm, I'm not tied to anywhere. So I am really prone mm. to just like moving for opportunities, like yeah. leaving family behind. And it doesn't, it doesn't 
make me feel any differently than if I'm 200 miles away from my mother, or if I'm, you know, 50 miles away from my mother. It, like, it doesn't register my brain. But when I talk to some of my colleagues who I, – I have a friend right now who's here from Argentina. He's, he's studying mm-hmm. physics and uh, mm-hmm. he could potentially get employment in the United States. But that would involve a, a large uh, – a big decision for him because he withhold, he holds family values so important right. to right. his homeland. Right. Right. Like some of these pe- some some people from from different regions, uh, I I don't think that they come here and they want to settle down and and stay forever. Yeah, I think it's a it's a it's almost like an American going off to the military. They they go for a few years. They try to make a living. They they totally. try to solve a problem back at the homeland. Right. And, and, Absolutely. And, and then come back. And, and there's then, not enough. Sympathy. And then sometimes life gets in the way. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they don't go back because they met a girl or a guy and they got married and they had kids. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's been several decades and they don't go back. But that, um, that, uh, oh, what's the phrase? I think they were called birds of passage. Um, I think there might even be a book called birds of passage about the Italian immigrants who, I mean, this is, this has absolutely been a part of migration history in the u.s the going back the coming Mm -hmm. for a few years and going back like come make some money and go back home and marry a nice girl and settle down in your village and stay there forever and that and 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 that's something that um has been you know it's been uncovered in immigration history but i think was kind of ignored for a long time because we think of again like that that huddled masses image is so um pervasive and informative Mm -hmm. and the huddled masses are like oh, these are the families that they're coming on the boats through Ellis Island and they're bedraggled and they're poor and they're coming to stay here forever because they can't go back home. And we don't think about the single young men who came from Italy or Poland or Ireland even and um, and planned to come back and many of them did go back, mm-hmm. right? And especially in that like 19th century big migration of Southern Europeans, there were a lot of people who did exactly that. They came, they made money and they went back. And there is an argument, um, a very good argument, I think, that um, Mexican immigration history is an, a history of immigrants who primarily wanted to uh, come here to work during the, like, since many of them are doing agricultural labor, to work during the growing season, Mm -hmm. and then to go back uh, to Mexico on the off season and live with their families and, you know, enrich and like bring the money that they had made and bring the goods that they had bought. Um, And in fact, Mexican migration, like part of the reason that Mexican migration wasn't um, restricted in the 1920s when we had a series of very restrictive um, like nativist immigration laws that were passed, um, Mexican immigrants weren't restricted um, in part because the agricultural lobby lobbied so hard to make sure that they could still come, but also because they were seen as seasonal migrants and they were seasonal migrants. You know, that, it, That's not to say there wasn't um, settle, settlement happening, like my, Mexicans were establishing, um, and of course, they were also migrating to places that used to be Mexico. So that's another little complicated asterisk yeah. <laughs> we can put aside. But um, but they were beginning to, to settle in urban centers and to bring their families. And by the 1920s, there was an increasing number of women and children that were coming along for that migration. But there was a huge migration of single men that would come work in the fields and then go back. And so the, the, one of the arguments is that as we have increased our border security and as we have... Um, made more and more laws restricting migration. And as we put up 
a cap on the number of migrants that can come from the Western Hemisphere that's mm-hmm. so far below the number of people that we have that we demand, like that we have jobs for, and the number of people that want to come. So we've created, I mean, we've really created this undocumented immigration, um, and as a result, because when people are undocumented, it's more risky to cross the border, mm-hmm. right? To and to 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 go back and forth across the border. So we've created this class of undocumented people. We've reinforced security along the border. It's much more dangerous and costly and risky to cross the border. And so we've created a a class of Mexican migrants who would go back home if they could. They wouldn't follow that old pattern of being seasonal migrants. Mm -hmm. and And then eventually, once they didn't work anymore, returning to Mexico and staying there. But they can't because they have to stay here because... Otherwise, they're risking paying thousands of dollars or dying in the desert. That's that's actually very interesting. It's very interesting because, yeah, it actually illuminates a a point that I hadn't considered, and and, and it is that we tend to 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 trap them here once they get here. We we don't mm-hmm. allow the. So I guess that's where a lot of people who who advocate for open borders are are maybe getting the motivation for their ideas, and and it's nevertheless interesting. It's it's interesting that. It would be interesting to see the amount of migration that would occur um, in in the absence of of heightened border security. Now, I'm not advocating for that. I, I'm right. just, it's just a thought exercise. I'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to see. Recently, it would be. Recently, it I had a, a um, someone come to to fix some things in my apartment, and he was, and we, we talked for three hours. Me and this guy. This is the podcaster and me coming out. I should have just set up. And <laughs> I know you should have. And he was a uh, he was a uh, he came from from Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And he came by himself, and he he came for whatever reason. He came to northern New York. Did he come after Maria or before? He actually came after. Okay. Yeah, because I asked yeah. him about that. You mean Hurricane Maria, right? Yeah, Hurricane yes. Maria. I asked that, him about yeah. that. Yeah, and I was picking his brain on the way that he sort of looks at the world, the way he looks at immigration, and now Puerto Rico is not the the sort of the best place of origin to ask people and compare it to mexico because in puerto rico the getting to the united states is much easier than well yeah and they're citizens yeah right and so they don't have to deal with yeah yes but but i think that some of the sort of cultural values are similar in the sense that that his goal was to return home um Mm -hmm. and then when he got here he underwent exactly what you're talking about. He started to make a life for himself here. He started, mm. to, he had a girlfriend here. Yeah, that's, and, and that's like gotta be the number one reason, I think, actually. Yeah. And it was very interesting to see it. it yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. So blame so he, all the single so, people out there for, for keeping <laughs> the immigrants here. Yes. Um, right. Yeah. And, and uh, his values had, had changed over time. And also, I love talking about politics. Because he mm-hmm. had, an i he had, an opinion about politics that Americans need to have. I think more often, he oh, said this to me. He said, uh, "I hate Donald Trump, but I support him." He said, "When I saw Donald throwing the paper towels into the crowd mm-hmm. of Puerto Ricans, mm-hmm. like it made him sick." Do you do you remember mm-hmm. that? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So for all of the listeners out there, you can look up the picture. Donald Trump is like uh, pretending to be a basketball player or something, and he's like throwing paper towels into a crowd this is of... like his relief effort post hurricane maria right which yeah yeah in the context of the u.s government's relief effort which was really problematic 
it's a kind of a let them eat cake moment, yeah. <laughs> right? Where you have Donald Trump like literally just throwing rolls of paper towels to people. Yeah. So didn't so, play all that well. Right. And 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 it it, it definitely upset him because he has family that that lives yeah. in, in Puerto Rico. But he said, I support him because I want him to do good. Because if he does good, the country that I live in does good. Mm-hmm. And that's what mm-hmm. I want. And and I and I could not agree with that sentiment more. And I think that more people in this country, rather than picking a side specifically on immigration right if rather than than doing that they could get together and they could conversate and they could come up with ideas and they could test those ideas even if it's not something Mm -hmm. they directly agree with i think that would be really good for the state of the country and for the state of immigration because Hmm. we do need donald trump to succeed in the sense that we want him to do good things for our country Um, i see a lot of of outright hate where they're like Oh, I hope he gets the wall funding. I hope he puts it up and it doesn't work. That's not, that's not good. That's bad. Yeah. That doesn't yeah. help anyone. Um, it, it's it's absolutely like a, a want. To, they want him to fail, but they don't realize that if he fails, we all fail as as American people. Even if you didn't right. vote for him. Right, and I mean, I also think you know, and this is where the discussion of immigration history can be helpful. Like. Donald Trump is not the cause of these problems. He right. is a symptom of these much, I mean, his, some of his policies or some of like the way that he acts, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, sort of, he's the symptom, not the cause. Like he, some of the ways that he acts uh, are really, really have their roots in these like much older tendencies mm-hmm. towards like, uh, towards nativism in this country. And, um, so, you know, like we, he's not, he didn't come up with the idea of the wall. I mean, in another piece, I, I was researching another piece and I've read uh, for another piece about deportation policies. Like he didn't come up with the idea of deporting everybody. Oh my God, we've done that so many times. We've tried mm-hmm. to do that so many times. We've never done it, but we've tried to do it. We've had roundups, so many roundups all through the 20th century where we have, and before, where we have um, sent out, not allowed people in, sent people out, put them in prisons, um, you know, he didn't come up with that. And the, the wall, I mean, I saw a really interesting article is that the first wall we tried to build along the war- border was to keep the Chinese out mm-hmm. after the anti-Chinese legislation at the end of the ni- 20, at the 19th century. And so, um, you know, so there have been like the idea of walls goes really far back too. So making Trump into the scapegoat for all of this is actually like excusing, especially if you're somebody who thinks that all this stuff is wrong, that's actually excusing, uh, like our whole American history. You know, that's right. kind of, it's yeah. kind of, you know, it's, it's mistakenly believing that he's the, or he and his people are the origin for all these ideas. And no, and nobody was trying to do this before mm-hmm. when actually, I mean, I think it's just much more accurate to say that we are a country that is caught between two impulses, one impulse to think of ourselves as a nation of immigrants and to welcome immigrants and to be a heterogeneous country. And that's one of the stories that we tell about ourselves. And another impulse that is about, um, you know, the fear mm-hmm. of who's coming in and what are they going to do and can we support them and, um, you know, and, and can we afford them and, and will they be dangerous to us? You know, and all of those questions. And and those are like, you know, sometimes, sometimes those questions, sometimes it, that that's again a kind of a binary setup. And there are people who could, who can 
take from both sides of that argument, right? Who can say, well, yeah, we need border security, but also we should be a place that welcomes immigrants. I mean, mm-hmm. I would prefer that more people were willing to pick from both sides of that argument and yeah. to consider both sides of that argument. Because um, both are, are, like, if you take one side or the other, if you say we're a country that has always welcomed immigrants until now, that's really problematic. Yeah. That it, it's not true. Um, and it kind of makes us, it kind of makes us feel like we're not responsible for what's happening now in a way. Right. You well, know, you, when, me- you mentioned, you know, um, the Asian immigration. Wasn't there a point in our history that we invited people from Asia to come in and, and do cheap labor? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, we, well, again, I'm going to reach for something. Sorry. Again, all that, um, all that, yeah, we, so we wanted Asian labor. We referred to them collectively as coolies. Most of them were Chinese Mm -hmm. um, to come in and help build the railroads in the West and and to work as miners. And there already was an existing like Pacific, there's a, I mean, the Pacific um, trade routes go back to the Spanish, Spanish colonies, the Spanish Empire, right in in the New World, where they, um, where where there was trade between um, Acapulco and Manila, and there were Chinese uh, travelers and immigrants coming along that route, and then um, and then yeah, so there, there's a like sort of mid-century migration of mid-nineteenth century migration of Chinese um, into the American West. And then as more and more Anglo settlers come from the American East and they compete with those, I mean, this is, this is also a, the competing over jobs, right? Mm-hmm. They compete with those Asian immigrants for jobs. And then you see the tensions like really ratcheted up, yeah. you know, and, and, and that's also in the context of the gold rush and like the, you know, the establishment of San Francisco and, you know, but those are, ve- there very much was this, um, earlier Asian migration there that, um, wasn't problematic until it was problematic. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It, it's interesting how, as a historian, maybe you would agree with this, how history does tend to repeat itself um, Yeah. over and over. It's humans have a way of, I think it's almost like humans collectively think pretty similarly and we also tend to be egotistical and we like to think Mm -hmm. our ideas work but we forget that we think like the people a hundred years ago and that that idea has been attempted and it didn't work um and then we think oh but they didn't do it right i can do it better because i'm a better person and and we we try (laughs) it again and we keep trying it and more and more people come along and and do the same idea and that's why uh, discussion is so important when you make policy because the idea is that if you put enough brains in one place, you will create an, an original idea, not an idea that has been attempted over and over again, but something that is a amalgamation. Is that a word? Amalgamation? Yeah, amalgamation. Amalgamation. Yeah. You create an amalgamation of ideas. And you put them all together, and then you get something that is original and might actually be effective, and not something right. that that has already been thought of a hundred years ago, two hundred right, years right. ago. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I think in that can work. Like, well, this is the other thing that historians do is we say it was more complicated, and then we also say this happened before. This happened before, mm-hmm. you know. So, which which actually is a kind of simplifying argument because nothing happens exactly the same way twice, but um, there are like repetition. We do 
we do repeat ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you, you do want to come up with new things. And then you also want to go back to the past and see what worked. Exactly. Yes. And see if you can implement some of those things that worked. Um, so, yeah, so there's some combination. I mean, I think, I think way more historians should be involved in policy discussions. Um, and way more politicians should be wanting to hear yeah. from historians. Like, we should be really busy testifying on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I say that all the time about scientists. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's true about scientists. We yep. need more scientists, you know, we need more scientists in office. I think wasn't wasn't there, weren't there a couple of um, scientists that were just recently elected? Yeah, there's like 11 or something, some record oh, number. That's great. Yeah. That's good. We need yeah. people also who understand science. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, we need people who are able to view immigration through a, through a long lens. You know, I mean, like, to me, it's really interesting how the, like, to see how Latin American, like, for a long time, the, like, the trope, to look at these tropes and see how they get recycled and see how they recur in our history, like, for a long time in, um, you know, for like I was saying before, certain immigrants were classified as dangerous. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the other, uh, there was another point I wanted to make that like both dangerous and also too different, like too different to ever assimilate, right? Yeah. Unassimilable. And so the the ones who were often classified, sometimes those categories overlapped, but like the ones that were ca- classified as dangerous were the Southern and Eastern Europeans. And the ones who were classified as unassimilable were like um, mostly Asian immigrants. And then mm-hmm. sometimes also Jewish immigrants. Like these people are not Christian. They are from a totally different culture than ours. There's no way they can ever become American, right? Which is so interesting because now Asian immigrants in particular are often categorized as the quote unquote model minority, Mm -hmm. right? People who do assimilate really well, they do so well on their, you know, on their tests and they get into Harvard and, you know, so so like, so these tropes are very malleable. They really, or they, the, like who they're applied to, it can really change. Um, So, uh, so what's interesting to see is how the, the trope of, so today, I think I, argue, I argued this in the 1920s piece, um, those two tropes of like dangerous and unassimilable, they get applied to, um, both of them get applied to Muslim immigrants, mm-hmm. that they're dangerous yeah. and they're too different to ever assimilate because of their incredibly different religious traditions. And mm-hmm. that's where you hear people talking about Sharia law and, you know, not really understanding what Sharia law is, but using it as shorthand for like the thing that makes them too, dif- too different from right. us. Right. So there's that concern. Um, and then the concern that they're dangerous, which uh, for, you know, connections to terrorism for Muslim immigrants. And then what's been so interesting for me is to see that dangerous label applied to Latino immigrants, because it really wasn't for a long time. Mm-hmm. They weren't considered, I don't think, I guess it would be an interesting question, but in the, what in what I've seen, they weren't considered dangerous. The threat of Latino migrants was that maybe like that they were taking American jobs. Yeah. I mean, native born American jobs, mm-hmm. but not that they were dangerous. And that's something that's been kind of new for me to see or has really sur- resurged or, or surged up in the Trump period. So that is something that's changed. It's like not that not calling immigrants dangerous, because that's something we've done for a long time, but calling Latino immigrants dangerous and like focusing on, you know, narco trafficking, connections to drug cartels, connections to um, to the gangs. Uh, 
and that kind of thing. Yeah, I looked at some statistics uh, from the is it Pew Research yeah, Center. Pew. Yeah, get a yeah, better name, good. people. I don't know. <laughs> it's named after someone. It's the worst. No one even knows how to say it. Um, so I, I looked up some uh, some statistics from them, and I was amazed. They did a. They've been doing a study since 1994, and the study essentially asks: Do immigrants burden our country right. by taking jobs, housing, and healthcare, et cetera, or do they strengthen our country through hard work and talents? Right. And only 26 percent of the people polled said that they burden our country. And this is down from 63% in 1994. Yeah. So that's interesting. I saw that too. It's interesting to me because it goes so much against what I would have thought the number would have been. And so I, I'll, I'll ask you in, clo- in closing, um, with that statistic in mind, do you think that the immigration problem really is as a large-scale problem as it's being portrayed by our current administration? Or is it is it a, a problem, or is it not necessarily a problem that's impacting society on a large scale, unless you're concerned with the ethical and moral obligation to protect people from, from being in undocumented mm-hmm. labor? Well, okay, they, I guess the answer is complicated. Yes, I think it is. I think it is a problem. I don't think it's a problem in the way that um, our administration or the media has portrayed it, right? I don't think immigrants are more dangerous. And I've seen the statistics on this. I've seen yes, statistics I trust on, trust on this. I don't think they're inherently more dangerous than other people, um, than the native born. Um, I don't think they're taking, quote unquote, our jobs. Like, I don't think they're taking the jobs that the native born um, are wanting to take. But I think that it's a problem that those jobs exist. Mm-hmm. In a, like, I think it's a problem that there are jobs that the native born won't take because they're so dangerous, so poorly paid, so, you know, undesirable for so many reasons that the only people that, that and that, that the only people who will take them are people who are living at the margins of our society. I think undocumented immigration is a problem because it creates a class of like, I think our reliance on immigration, undocumented immigration, our willingness to allow undocumented immigrants to to exist in the country without legalizing them, right, without mm-hmm. providing them any opportunity to legalize, creates a permanent underclass of marginalized people that can't access emergency services, that can't, you know, that that can't provide stability to their own children, yeah. like that are always living in fear of deportation, that sometimes are deported, and the effects that that has on their children, many of whom are U.S. citizens mm-hmm. because they were born here, the effects that that, that, has, that has on our children, like, okay, I have a moral problem with it and I have a compassion, I feel compassionate towards them, but also I think we can make the argument that that's really harmful to American society going down the road, right? That even I agree. if these children are citizens, they haven't been able to access like health services, education, the police because their parents were undocumented and they had to live in fear. And we could say, well, they shouldn't have come here. They shouldn't have come here in the first place as undocumented workers. They made the choice to break the law, but we should also say, but we have this whole economy that employs them. So, you know, and, and continues to employ them and actually seeks to employ them. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, and then, and then how do we participate in that economy as consumers, right? Like you really, if you wanted to boycott organizations that, hired undocumented immigrants 
you really would not be able to. I mean, you would, you would yeah. effectively have to go live off the grid. Right. If you, and I, I really thought this through. I thought about, is it possible? You'd have to grow your own food. <laughs> you know, you mm-hmm. would have to, um, you, you, I, I just, just kind of a, like a whole host of things that you couldn't do. You really couldn't live in a city. Yeah. You know, you couldn't go out to eat. You couldn't go in a building. Mm-hmm. You couldn't go in any place that had been landscaped. Um, because all of those are areas where undocumented workers work. And so, so I really think undocumented immigration is a problem, but I think it's a problem for really different reasons than, um, our current administration thinks. Um, and I think it's a problem that does not have an easy solution, doesn't have one solution, and it doesn't have any really easy solutions. And that's also really a problem in our political discourse right now, because everybody wants solutions that are simple. So build a wall and crime will fall is a really simple solution. Mm -hmm. And it rhymes. Yeah, so, it does, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's that professional wrestling attitude I was talking about. That's what it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And that and and so like, yeah, there's some way that in which we seek that, but I'm really hopeful actually that um like the I saw those numbers too about more and more Americans are, you know, starting to think so they are agreeing with the statement that yes, immigrants do provide value. I forget what the phrasing was, but like provide value for American society or immigrants are not such, they're not such a bad thing for society. Yeah. Right. I'm really hopeful about that because I think actually, and I think we've, this, this has happened before, like in the, in the 1920s and 1930s, we passed really restrictive immigration legislation that Mm -hmm. effectively barred almost everybody coming from Southern and Eastern Europe, including Jewish immigrants, right? It Mm -hmm. placed a cap on the number of people that could come where from countries where Jewish immigrants were coming. And that was on purpose. We didn't want those immigrants. We decided that they were, they were undesirable and that they were dangerous and that they were too different and couldn't assimilate. Right. And then world war two happened and who was seeking refuge in the United States during world war two, but large numbers of Jewish immigrants mm-hmm. and we turned them away. And in some cases we actually sent shipfuls of them back to Europe where they died. Right. Yeah. And so there, then there's, there's been a lot of coverage of that. Um, and as a result, you know, in I think 1946, but it could have been later. We signed on to the UN, like we signed on to the UN. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mangle the name of it all. The UN agreement on um, asylum and refugees. Yeah. You'll have to Google they, it. They, 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 the viewers will yeah. know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, and we, and we, you know, and we began, we, we established an official refugee mm-hmm. and asylum policy, like criteria by which we would grant asylum to people and allow them to come in as refugees. Yeah. And in large part, like people, people have argued, well, that's because of the like guilt that we felt about our having turned away these mm-hmm. people who really did need refuge. Right. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if the, especially like the mo- the sort of like moral moment we had last summer that's still going on of children, incarcerated migrant children, like those yeah. images of incarcerated mi- and you're too young to have kids, but, <laughs> but you're a human, so you yeah. can em- still empathize. But I mean, for those of us with small kids that age, it was, it was like, oh, okay, this is, this is, I mean, and I think that the numbers across American society where like the numbers of people that disapproved were very, very high, regardless of political affiliation. Like that's kind of a line that, you know, you don't want to see being crossed. And I wonder if those and other kind of like 
unnecessary, unnecessary and blatant acts of repression towards immigrants will work to make Americans feel a little bit more sympathetic towards immigrants again, make them feel a little bit more like, well, maybe they're not so dangerous. Maybe they're, maybe they are, they, these are people that we should be welcoming. I mean, again, we're mm-hmm. always caught between these two impulses to welcome and to pull up the gates. And yep. so we have to decide what we're going to be. So I hope we go back towards um, a little bit more of pulling up the gates. Um, and, and again, I don't want to just say, I don't want to just pin all of this on Trump. Like, you know, no, immigration, I, I, I'm with immigration you. Act- activists called Obama the deporter in chief uh-huh. because deportations went very high, went up, very, went up significantly during his administration. And they also, um, and so did detention of immigrants. But did it, like the tension of immigrants became a huge problem during the Obama administration. Right. So, you know, we've been in this moment of, of restrictionism for mm-hmm. a long time. It's, it's, it has come primarily from people on the political right. Like there has it's been more, there's been more of that impulse, but, they, but people, the anti-immigrant folks have also pushed some people on the left towards um, more restrictionism. And I hope we're going to swing, the pendulum is going to swing back a little bit towards um, trying to find, like humane solutions to the problem that acknowledge that we ourselves are part of the problem. Yeah. No, this is all good stuff. Uh, I think we should probably wrap it up and let you get back to your life. (laughs) Thank you for being here. I think we should do this again. It's, it's such a important thing to talk about and it's good to have historical perspective like you have to accompany the conversation because we could sit here and talk about our opinions all day, but it's good to have, to have someone who knows the history the way that you know the history as it uh, as it applies to immigration and specifically Mexican immigration and it's good to sort of pick your brain and and try to apply your beliefs and your knowledge to the things going on in the world today that seem to be so prevalent in every conversation that I'm in all the time yeah. so yeah 